This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast. My name is Rob Wilbur. Uh, I am the editor-in-chief of the Pitch, and this show is an extension of the Pitch, so that is why you are hearing my voice. How are you out there? I am having a very fun, like, sort of in-between time. Um, I am trying my best to read more books about criticism. I stopped doing it after uh, going to film school and college. Because I read a lot of, like, self-masturbatory sort of, like, I'm so very smart and I have brought the most important, best ideas possible into the room. Um, And then I had to, as a student, write essays that agreed with that. And I was like, you know what, I think I lost my love of writing about film and that sort of thing. So um, there is a publishing house... Uh, that is doing some really interesting things for me. Um, they've been at this for a couple of years. Uh, Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins and some other guys uh, are doing these books that are like 400 pages long about like, hey, here's the history of how all of the Halloween movies came together. Or here's one called Slash of the Titans, perfect title, about the 20 different uh, versions of Freddy versus Jason <laughs> that over two decades almost came to the screen, uh, which if you've ever seen Freddy versus Jason, just an atrocious film. But for very, very many years, everyone involved was like, everything about this is precious. What we need to make is like the Titanic of movies. And then at some point um, they're like, I don't know, just throw some shit up on the screen. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but like, this is sort of a chronicle of the production timeline of that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and the sort of takeaway is that everyone in the nineties and the early aughts, everyone in Hollywood had a version of this, uh, that they were like, Hmm, we will consider that Freddy Krueger, Jason, how could it go wrong? How could it not print its own money? Uh, and it turns out there's a lot of ways it can go wrong. So it's very funny, uh, like outside of any sort of like horror movie thing. Like, I don't think anyone would need to have a background in these just to read this and be like, oh, wow, this is the creative process. And this is how it goes wrong, which is simply incredible. It is funny from start to finish. It is so many, again, so many pages. <laughs> I'm like, I, I think I'm going to finish it soon. I'm like, it might take weeks. It, there's there's a lot here, and I appreciate the effort that went into it. So uh, that's a thing I've been spending some time on. Like, that's the uh, go, to sleep, uh, go to sleep at night sort of, like, read time thing. Um, just being like, okay, let's see how other people tried to write Uh what was ostensibly one of the biggest challenges in the history of horror Hollywood. So, I don't know. It's very funny to me. Anyway, we have a great episode today. We are talking to um, some people about alternatives 
to the death sentence. Uh, that is our big interview. We have Nick's uh, music corner, as per always. Uh, but first up, a reading from our friend Jason at Stolen Dress Entertainment uh, of Liz Cook's story about illegal pop-up restaurants in Kansas City and legal ones and just how tricky this entire scene has become. So, like, Jason, take it away. Pop-up politics. Local vendors fight to claim their space in the metro. By Liz Cook. Scroll through Instagram for a few minutes, and there's a good chance you'll see an ad for a pop-up food business, some kind of nomadic restaurant, bakery, or shop, operating with variable hours outside, and sometimes inside, other businesses. Although the business model has been around for decades, pop-ups surged during the pandemic, with plenty of news coverage and magazine articles clocking the rise. If the last couple of years proved anything, it's that the pop-up business model offers a host of benefits besides pandemic-friendly ventilation. Pop-ups are cheaper to launch and cheaper to operate, requiring less upfront investment in real estate, equipment, and staff. Many pop-up vendors also save on traditional advertising, relying on Instagram to spread the word about their businesses and hours. But it can be hard to quantify the number of pop-up businesses in KCMO for one reason. Most of them are operating illegally. The city's permitting infrastructure neither predicted nor adapted to the rise of the pop-up, leaving entrepreneurs scrambling for solutions. Sap Brady, owner of the Seaward Cakery, is one of many pop-up vendors fighting for a better regulatory regime. During the pandemic, she launched the Seaward out of her home, selling vegan cupcakes and layer cakes decorated with fresh flowers, intricate piping, and off-color messages like, happy fucking birthday, or hope your baby doesn't turn out to be a murderer. Baking for the Seaward was her dream job. Thanks to pop-ups, she was able to make it her full-time job, too. I started popping up around the city, which helped me make a lot of really cool friendships and start new relationships with businesses and other vendors, and that got my client base going, Brady says. I don't think I would be where I'm at now if it wouldn't have been for pop-ups, and I think that's how it is for a lot of businesses. After hearing about another pop-up vendor being shut down for operating without a permit, Brady called the KCMO Health Department to ask how she could operate legally. It was really hard to get a straight answer. I don't even know if it's necessarily the health department's fault. There's just a lot of gray area. Currently, pop-up restaurants and food vendors don't qualify for a KCMO food establishment permit, which is the annual permit that allows most brick-and-mortar restaurants and bakeries to operate. Nor do they qualify for a mobile food unit permit, unless they already own a food truck or trailer with mechanical refrigeration and a hand-washing station. And most vendors don't operate that way. Many choose the pop-up model for its low barrier to entry, as they may not have sufficient capital to invest in a food truck and equipment right away. So they set up a table or tent outside a bookstore or brewery to test the waters and make sure there's a market for their product. For these vendors, the only legal path to operation is to apply for a temporary event permit, a one-day pass that allows them to sell at a public event after a health department inspection. But if the public event isn't sufficiently eventy, the permit still might be denied. In the city's eyes, an event is a wedding, a bat mitzvah, a food festival. An event is not selling cakes. Brady has stopped running pop-ups entirely while she awaits a safe and legal solution, and her business has taken a hit. She estimates thousands of dollars lost from shutting that part of her business down. In late April, she started an online petition encouraging the city of Kansas City, Missouri to create a permit for pop-ups. At the time of this writing, about 650 people had signed. Jai Coulter, the owner of the pop-up pizza shop Devoured, has faced similar challenges. When she first launched her pop-up a year ago, she tried to do everything above board. She, like Brady, called the KCMO Health Department and even visited the office in person. They, the Health Department, 
Didn't really understand what pop-up events were or what I was trying to do, Coulter says. I got a lot of no's. I got a lot of confusion. A lot of times they'd say, oh, we just don't have the staffing to approve your event. Coulter came away with the impression that the explosion in pop-ups during the pandemic and the associated explosion in people like her applying for temporary event permits had stretched the city's inspectors thin. Last summer, Coulter tried to stage a pop-up at the Crossroads Cocktail Bar SOT on two consecutive weekends. She applied for a permit both times. Her first application was approved. Her second, identical application, was denied. When she asked for an explanation, she was told an inspector wasn't available that day. Although no health department officials were available for an interview with the pitch, Deputy Director Nazar Juhari told Coulter at a public meeting that no permits should have been denied due to staffing shortages. Coulter decided to hold her pop-up at SOT anyway. She says the health department reprimanded both her and SOT for proceeding without a permit. The experience was frustrating enough that she eventually decided to move devoured across state lines to Johnson County, where she says she can pay an annual fee for a permit that allows her to operate in a variety of areas. This summer, she plans to sell her pizza every Wednesday and Saturday at the Overland Park Farmer's Market. She's joining a community that's developed a reputation as a small business incubator. Taco Naco started there as a pop-up before opening a brick-and-mortar restaurant. So did Buck Tui BBQ. Both are now successful permanent businesses, and both stayed in Overland Park. If the permitting process in KCMO remains convoluted, the city risks losing more small businesses to Kansas, or worse, stifling them before they get off the ground. Still, Coulter is cautious about playing into border war tropes. She'd like to serve her pizza around the metro without worrying about the zip code. I just want to make pizza for people. I'm not trying to start a war between Kansas and Missouri. I want the health department to know that. We're not trying to fight with you guys. We just love to serve people and do cool shit around the city. In the absence of guidance from the city, pop-up business owners have taken a few different paths. Some of them, like Coulter, have moved across state lines. Some, like Brady, have stopped their pop-up events entirely. And others have chosen to keep operating illegally, knowing they could face consequences, including fines. I don't know of any permit I can get to make what I'm doing today completely legal, says Dan Duncan, owner of the bagel pop-up Bread Friends. Duncan had been baking for years before he hosted his first pop-up, he went through a sourdough phase long before it became a pandemic punchline. But he stumbled on a hit when he started making Montreal-style bagels, smaller than New York-style bagels, and baked over a wood fire. In 2021, he scheduled his first bagel pop-up at Guavel, a men's clothing store on the crossroads. He's since popped up at women's clothing store Dear Society, PH Coffee, and Big Mood Natural Wines. No matter where he goes, he always sells out. But he knows he's on thin regulatory ice. Missouri Cottage Food Laws allow him to sell bagels, but not the sweet chili or wasabi honey cream cheese he serves alongside. And who wants a bagel without schmear? Duncan says he takes food safety seriously and does the best he can on his own. He has his food handler's permit, sanitizes his equipment, and monitors his coolers closely to make sure his schmears stay at a safe temperature. He hasn't had any run-ins with the health department yet, but the risk has kept him from scaling his business up even as his client base grows. I just want to be able to operate safely and legally and not have to worry about whether the health department is going to shut me down. It doesn't seem like an impossible ask. Duncan points to Chicago's pop-up initiative, which created semi-permanent licenses for both pop-up operators and the businesses that host them. I think there's a really strong case to be made to the city that offering this sort of path to legitimacy is ultimately a boon for the local economy. It gives us a chance to test our product, make sure there's a customer out there. And once we get to the point where if we want a food truck and want a location then we're more likely to succeed and more likely to be a net benefit for the local economy and the community. Brick-and-mortar businesses that host pop-up vendors are already seeing some of these benefits. Richard Garcia, owner of Big Mood Natural Wines, collaborates with pop-up vendors almost weekly. 
He's worked with Duncan, Coulter, and Brady, as well as the vendors behind Stag Pizza, Tacos Valentina, and No Coast Creamery. The initial reason for even hosting pop-ups was to share my space and platform and help other small business owners come in and get their thing off the ground a bit, Garcia says. But the pop-ups have been good for Garcia's business, too. Big Mood isn't just a bottle shop. It's also a bar where customers can purchase wines by the glass. It's nice to have food available for people to come in and grab something to eat while they drink here. In recent months, Garcia has expanded his focus from hosting pop-ups to hosting organizational meetings about them. Brady, Coulter, and members of the pop-up Tacos Valentina have used Big Mood as their de facto headquarters as they discuss challenges, contact city officials, and research potential solutions. In early May, the group met at Big Mood to discuss some of their challenges and ideas with Juhari. The meeting was requested, though not attended, by city manager Brian Platt. During the meeting, Juhari seemed committed to helping pop-up vendors find a solution, but he didn't hide his concerns. You cannot operate whenever you want, wherever you want on a sidewalk, he tells them. Operating restrictions are there for a reason. The CDC estimates that 3,000 people die from foodborne illness every year, a statistic Juhari can and does recite by heart. What's the difference between us and a hot dog cart on the sidewalk? Coulter asks. We have hot dog carts, Juhari says. We have 480 permitted hot dog carts. Get a cart. Get a cart. The pop-uppers are unmoved, nor do they seem convinced when Juhari urges them to pursue ghost kitchens instead. Many vendors can't afford to rent a commercial kitchen to prepare their food any more than they can afford a food truck or cart. Others, like Coulter, need to be able to assemble and cook their food on location and in a specialized pizza oven. The meeting ended after an hour and a half, with little in the way of solutions, but a commitment to continue the conversation. The vendors agreed to work on a rough draft of a new permit for Juhari to consider and target a follow-up meeting at the Health Department after June 1, 2022. If they create a new permit, at minimum, the City Council will need to debate and vote on it, which means vendors may not see a resolution before the summer. But they're hopeful. At the very least, they're willing to try. Before Juhari left, he handed the pop-up vendors a stack of printouts of the city's current permits for them to draw from. I want you to serve the city, generate more revenue, be a successful business, he says. On that much, everyone agrees. And now it's time for Nick from Nick's Music Corner to talk about the way, way back, one of our favorites. Nick, take it away. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Kansas City's The Way Way Back have been regular purveyors of mid-aughts emotional pop-punk for a few years now, and while it's always delightful to dig into the sounds of newfound glory saves the day at all, the lyrical content doesn't quite hit as much as it might have 20-some-odd years ago. Songs about girls breaking your heart and staying out late are a little less relatable when you're trying to pay your mortgage and making appointments to get a mole checked out. Thankfully, The Way Way Back's new EP, Trying, has songs which speak to those of us who want to sing along and bounce up and down as much as our fading knees will allow us. Namely, After Ever After, the song which marks the midpoint of the EP and features the all-too-relatable opening lyrics, I saw a silver streak in my hair and started spiraling. It's only one of several songs which address love and getting older, and makes the point that pop-punk can mature along with its most devoted fans. You can snag trying from The Way Way Back's Bandcamp at thewaywaybackband.bandcamp.com. Here's After Ever After. Streak in my 
Right on. So now I am talking to a representative from Missourians uh, looking for an alternative to the death penalty. Um, this is one of those that, like, since I started this job, I get a lot of, like, messages. And Missouri, let's establish, throughout pandemic has kept executing people, men and women, and we are one of the only states to have done it. And so we get a lot of messages where they're like, hey, we're really hoping we can organize people tonight to, like, get the governor, get on the phone and be like, don't kill that person. Like, maybe they did indeed kill somebody, but killing them is not a good version of this. Let's let's do something. And then that is never, ever going to happen in Missouri. So this is a very interesting interview for me with somebody that I'm like, you are always uh, doing the Sisyphean, like, we're going to keep trying, but there's never a version of a world where a Missouri governor is like, you know what, let's not kill that person because we just love doing it here in Missouri. So this is uh, it's a little of a trigger warning. If you do not want to hear about that, tab out right now. Uh, but I find it to be a fascinating interview. So here we go. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Lauren, would you introduce yourself? My name is Lauren Subcheck, and I work for Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. What is it that you guys do? So we are a statewide organization um, that's a nonprofit that is trying to abolish the death penalty in the state of Missouri. And we do that by working with those directly impacted, so those on death row in the state their families, murder victim families, um, homicide victims, politicians, legislators, communities, faith leaders, um, as well as folks like you to share stories and uplift the humanity of people who are incarcerated. So let's talk uh, a little more directly here. Uh, like Missouri is one of the only states that is still executing people, uh, especially throughout pandemic. Like we executed, I believe, two women in 2020. Like, we just kept going with this while the rest of America was like, let's hold off. What is happening in Missouri? So in Missouri, um, we are one of three currently actively executing states in the country. It uh, doesn't mean that we're the only state that has the death penalty on the books legally. So there are plenty of states left in the country that still have uh, the practice of sentencing people to death, but we are just one of three currently that is actively executing. Um, and right now we are seeing an upward trend of executions under Governor Parson, who has now, uh, we have seen, been murdering people about every six months in our state. So that kind of gets to the, the kicking off point of why I wanted to talk to you, because like, I get your guys' like press releases and you're like, hey, there is this person that is about to be executed. We have a couple of days. Can we push on Governor Parson to save them? And like universally, I think we acknowledge there's no world where our culture war governor would ever pardon anything on this. Is it weird to come into this sort of thing and be like, hey, we are fighting a war that we know in no way will pan out? Or do you sometimes come into this thinking like, we, we really think we might change hearts and minds and get this guy to be like, hey, don't murder this person. 
Yeah, so every governor is different. Um, in recent history, the governor that killed the most amount of people was a Democrat, and that was in 2015. They were having executions about one every month. Jesus. So in the state of Missouri. It's not really a matter of who's in charge or not. Yes, Governor Parson isn't everyone's favorite person and <laughs> has shown himself to uh, be quite bloodthirsty in terms of the use of the death penalty. However, he's not the most actively executing governor we've ever had in the state of Missouri, um, which is like always been fun to let people know that it was a Democrat that did that. Um, we don't necessarily see it as like a negative thing that um, we're asking people to, you know, try to raise awareness about state violence and state sanctioned murder. When we see the trend overall nationally, we're seeing it decline. We're seeing capital punishment decline. And the few states, the rare states that are still holding out like Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas, we might be the last states to abolish the death penalty overall at the state legislative level, but it's going to take people like us in states like this to continue putting the pressure on so that other states can fulfill that goal as well, and then hope that we can too in time. Well, uh, so for the last few that finally like backed out of this, who were they and what uh, force them to finally like make that change like abolish the death penalty entirely. exactly what activism caused that to like be off the table <laughs> sure so one of the first well the first southern state to abolish the death penalty and the last state um, to do so recently was virginia and virginia historically was the most executing state in the history of the united states and what happened that what took the state of Virginia, they call their legislature the Commonwealth of Virginia, right. not like the Missouri State Legislature, but the Commonwealth of Virginia, what it took for them to abolish the death penalty was decades of pressure, decades of lobbying legislators, decades of, of advocates, of um, politicians, teachers, former executioners, um, they had a slew of people behind this work, tying it together year after year, decade after decade, since the 70s to, to end it. And unfortunately, what it took in Virginia was the state nearly executing their entire death row population. They only had two people left on their death row before they ended abolishing it. And then another factor of it is like, it's not it's not like you can plan for these things. They kind of just serendipitously happen. So in the Commonwealth of Virginia, another thing that happened was that they, they um, elected a governor and very quickly into his term in Virginia, it was found that he was discovered to have photographs in not the nicest settings. He was wearing blackface. And R Governor Ralph Northam, um, right. decided when it was found out that he was caught wearing blackface as in his younger years, um, he decided, well, I'm going to take up racial justice as an issue. I'm not going to step down. I'm not going to resign, but I will move forward and work on racial justice in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Okay. And one of those main things that the community had been pressing him to do and pressing the 
legislature to do in the Commonwealth of Virginia was to end the death penalty because the death penalty is inherently linked to racial terror lynching in our country. Right, especially in Virginia. <laughs> so it took everyone. So is, is the takeaway from that that the only places we can end um, murder by execution is finding blackface photos of our governor or... Uh, you would think. So would in think. some states... Um, in some states, shame and things of that nature in order to get politicians to act, sometimes it works. The majority of the time, but no matter what issue we're talking about, shaming a person into acknowledging a historically problematic issue right. um, to get them to act in a positive way and to, in a, in, to progress the state into a more humane state is never, it's never really the ultimate reason why they do so, right? Um, and we see that here in Missouri, it's not just Governor Parson, it's a, a large percentage of our state legislature who are refusing to act on things that are root causes of the crimes that then I see committed with the people that I work with. So when we're not addressing housing, when we're not addressing healthcare, education, the care of children, our foster care system is a joke, uh, and a mess, uh, when we're not addressing all these things, it affects people at that foundational level. And I'm not saying that everyone affected by root, root causes of crime um, end up where, oh. you know, in prison or incarcerated or on death row, but they are leading factors to a person's environment in the direction they go as they age, as they grow up. Um, and the number one factor is poverty. Every single person on death row in Missouri comes from poor, impoverished neighborhood or family. So what is your day-to-day -day, uh, in, in terms of this? It's, it's a wide array. <laughs> All right, let's It's a wide array of things. Um, so my title is organizer, but I run our communications, our social media, our contact creation, our website. I also run a pen pal program for folks on death row in Missouri. Um, I do a lot of speaking engagements with formerly incarcerated folks and death row exonerees in our states, primarily Reggie Griffin and Joe Amrine, um, both of whom have, uh, I also go with them to the state capitol to help them testify on various bills related to like exoneree remuneration, which is, uh, I'm sure you're aware of um, cases like Kevin Strickland, right. who was innocent and released. Um, well, the state doesn't pay people for being exonerated after they're released. Right. Uh, and that was the case of individuals who are also on death row if they're exonerated. Um, so sometimes I'll have to go to the state capitol with them. Um, I do a lot of admin work <laughs> as well gotcha. at MEDP. I also assist in helping facilitate grassroots networking and organizing amongst various people in the state and, and region who wanna help assist us in trying to end the death penalty year after year. We also do legislative work at MEDP. So every legislative session, we're finding co-sponsors, working with various, legislator, various legislators mm -hmm educating them about the costs and consequences of the death penalty um, and trying to get them to really encourage one another because that's something else that I think 
legislators in Virginia did really well is at a certain tipping point when they saw that they could get half and then they could get more support, right? Sure. From each other. It was about encouraging them to be um, brave. You know, th- this isn't a, this isn't a part partisan issue. This, this can be a bipartisan issue. This, this is a humanitarian issue. Right. And it doesn't matter what background you come from. There are a variety of reasons to oppose the death penalty. Well, it, so it is in that way that like, you know, I look at the list here of like Mark Russell, Walter, Ernest Carmen, et cetera. And that is to say nothing of what has happened in Kansas in this time, but like, uh, it feels like it must be an unendingly failing political platform to be like, hey, I want to be the politician to say that like this person that has been convicted of multiple murders should not die, especially here in the Bible Belt. Like, how do you help politicians try to sell that as part of a reason why they can and should exonerate people from not being murdered? (laughs) Yeah, I think the two bigger things too, and and to say uh, really quickly, we don't ever ask people to be exonerated for their crimes. Like there are sure, not there, not there that are, that was the wrong word. I know, understand. <laughs> there are people. That's okay. There are people, and I I just want to acknowledge that too because we're not here asking for them not to, you know, have to, you know, admit wrongdoing and try to heal from wrongdoing. And I think that that's a huge component that a lot of people misunderstand about our work is that we're not just engaging with people who have committed crimes. We engage with families. We engage with people who have suffered under these circumstances and suffered because of the death penalty system. But you are also working in like a, a vertical here where we have found in the last decade or so, like statistically, like so many people have been put to death that later we would have exonerated actually yes. like that, like the, yes. the risk reward here for the, the government and the justice system seems terribly, terribly unbalanced. So like you are yeah. in that space. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, we do work with innocent people as well. We have at least two that we know of that are on death row currently in our state. And, and so back to your question about, you know, what does move people, politicians in particular, legislators in particular, um, that big area that moves people is the issue of innocence, but issue, uh, innocence is not the only form of wrongful conviction. Um, So when we look at prosecutorial misconduct, that's another form of wrongful conviction that we try to stress to them, and that some of them understand, because some politicians in Missouri have legal backgrounds, and so they do understand the importance of that. Some of them care about constitutional rights. So, you know, a lot of issues around it, it the death penalty and just incarceration overall being an inhumane form of restitution um, hits politicians there sometimes. A big one in Missouri, because we have a large conservative but growing libertarian contingent here in our state capital, um, is cost. So it is a misnomer that the cost of the death penalty costs less than life incarceration. However, that's wrong. It actually costs more money to pursue a death penalty upon a person than it does life, uh, life without parole, simply because of the cost pre-trial and during trial. And then, 
you know, life incarcerated would be the same. And, and, and even a, some of the supply chain stuff on the chemicals required for whatever you do. Yeah. Like it's been a decade yeah. of like, it doesn't make fiscal sense if that's your no. basic line as a moral person. Yeah. And so I think a lot, another thing people need to recognize is that we, the taxpayers pay for that. Right. We, the politicians don't pay for that. We pay for that as taxpayers. And so wherever that death penalty case pre-trial is being held, for example, one was just held in St. Charles, where the jury, it, it was his second trial. The first jury decided 11 to one for life. So because they deadlocked, they, the state, state pursued it again. So that's a second trial cost. The jury came back with death, a death sentence. And then a couple months later, just last week, the judge in the case decided, no, the mitigating factors outweigh the jury's decision, and I'm going to sentence him to life. So they went two trials. That's millions of dollars right there. Then overturned the the jury. (laughs) And and the judge over, well, they didn't overturn it. He actually just sentenced to a lesser sentence um, to life without parole when they could have just did that the first trial and been done. And the state said, no, we're going to keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing. And that's something else that's special about Missouri is our prosecution has the ability to try and try and try and try again until they get death. And when the case of Carmen Deck, who was just murdered by the state at the beginning of this month with him, they got to do that over and over and over and over again for decades until they secured a death sentence. And by the time that they secured a death sentence, the majority of the witnesses in the case either had died or did not want to take stand. The jury was not informed about his previous trials and a lot of other mitigating evidence. And so naturally they referred, returned with a death sentence because they were so misinformed about this person's history. And so we see this happen over and over and over again in our state. And if we just didn't have the death penalty, then we wouldn't be wasting this amount of money. So cost is a huge one. I love to try and make the uh, the fiscal argument on this, like whether or not you believe in human life, the the taxpayer cost here is just ridiculous, it which I, I, I think there is the audience that that needs to be made to. So. That's weird. That's a weird time for everybody. How do people support your work and follow along with what you're doing? Because it seems like uh, it's not just like a supporting one group. It seems like you guys are always taking up a new case and a new thing. How, how do people stay involved in what it is you are doing? Yeah, so our website is www.madpmo.org. Okay. And our social media is a-D-P-M-O, so at M-A-D-P-M-O. But the biggest thing to note is we work with all of those on death row that are eligible for executions. And then we also follow cases that are at the pretrial level. So at any one point in time, we're working on a number of their cases specifically, but we're always working with all of them under, you know, behind the scenes. Okay. And so while, while we might put forward like a clemency campaign that's forward facing from time to time again, that doesn't mean that we're not working with the, the rest of them at the same time. Um, so the biggest way that the general public can engage with us is by following us online across our social media platforms, signing up for emails, and then participating in events. We host a lot of events online since COVID started. 
Um, but then we're, we're starting to sprinkle in some in-person ones here and there. Every year we do a lobby day at the state capitol. So that's a big one for folks to engage in because then they themselves can express their opinion about the death penalty directly to their legislators. Who I love lobby days because I love watching people hide from us. That's always a fun time. <laughs> right? Yeah, that is a good time. I And, you know, luckily I have developed decent relationships with a large percentage of the politicians that we have to work with and try to engage with. And my biggest thing is like, this isn't, I get that this is a very um, scary topic to most people because we're dealing with mortality. We're also dealing with grief. We're dealing with people's pain and trauma and that we need to be more open-minded when we discuss this in our communities about how this affects us as communities because we are dealing with violence in our communities. We are dealing with that. But is murder the answer to resolving what's happening in our community? And I don't think it is. I think we need to focus on restoration, but we can't even get there if we're murdering people in the name of justice. That, that well, just it's doesn't clearly not working for Kansas City because we haven't fixed fuck all about that, so. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, just in the last several days, there's been numerous shootings um, by the police and by pedestrians upon each other. Um, you know, when we talk about gun violence nationally, it's it's been a very difficult several weeks, right. a very traumatizing and painful several weeks for folks. I mean, as a parent, I feel that at my core. Um, and I don't know what I would want or feel or think if something ever happened to my child. However, I can't think that violence in response to violence is the answer. It's just not. And we're never gonna get there if all we keep doing is perpetuating the same thing, which is violent acts upon people who've been harmed too. So yeah, it's, it's gonna be an ongoing process. And I think that's why we don't give up in our work. I know it seems like an, you know, not a, not a fight that's worth going for sometimes, but mm. if we don't do it, um, we have to keep the pressure on. Uh, reporter team that's been listening in, do any of the three of you have questions for Lauren? Okay, so as an editorial team, we all think you're kicking ass. Thank you so much for this. Um, woof. Uh, what a difficult thing to get into each and every day. Um, Thank you for talking with us about this, and I hope this opens a channel. I um, I know for quite some time now, I've gotten like press releases from you guys when you're like, they're going to do it again later this week, and like it seems like such an upward battle. So like, we would like to be involved as early on as we can be moving forward to let people know like, hey, if you're going to use your voice, let's do it. Also, you have a wonderful cat. Hello, cat. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Kilgore's the best emotional support cat. She's a baby, and I love her. Um, I guess one other thing, too, just to note, um, so the current clemency campaign that we're asking folks to support is for a gentleman named Kevin Johnson. We call him KJ. Everyone calls him KJ. Um, and I've been lucky enough to know him for several years now. Um, Kevin was involved in it in um, a crime committed when he was 19 years old. He's from Meacham Park, which is just outside of St. Louis. And Meacham Park could have easily been Ferguson, um, where Mike Brown was shot and murdered by the police. 
So what happened in KJ's case, and you're welcome to go to our website and read about it, but what happened in KJ's case is that one day the police were raiding his house and he was down the street at a neighbor's house. And while that was happening, he could see the police raiding his house and in the doorway, you know, out on the front porch was his little brother, Bam Bam, and Bam Bam started seizing. And the police on the scene while raiding their house did nothing to give Bam Bam medical aid. Later on, Bam Bam was taken to the hospital and subsequently died. And then later that day, um, after the police had raided their house and everything, later that day, there were reports of fireworks going off in the neighborhood. And a very well-known cop named McEntee came to the neighborhood. Um, McEntee was known in the neighborhood as not being a good cop. He was known by the young black boys in the neighborhood for brutalizing them, terrorizing them, harassing them. Um, like most historically black neighborhoods, here's a white cop terrorizing black boys. And everyone, so all the black boys in the neighborhood knew him and were subsequently afraid of him. Right. Well, after that happened, McEntee was on the scene at the house during the raid. McEntee shows back up after these reports of fireworks are going off. And they, he, Kevin, and McEntee had a chance encounter and Kevin shot him. And before he shot McEntee, he said, you killed my brother. KJ grew up in poverty. You know, KJ did not have opportunities given to him that he should have been given growing up. He also lived in an environment where white cops were coming into a historically black neighborhood and harassing young black boys just like him. And the fact that he witnessed his brother die and was in that mental state when he subsequently shot McEntee and killed him tells you a lot about this case. Um, and there's so many more issues of misconduct in his case during the trials with a certain prosecutor and all these things. And we're not asking that KJ's let out of prison, simply that he is not executed. And so the state, uh, the AG moved to get a date set from the Supreme Court recently. He has not received an execution date yet. Um, but when that happens, you'll likely get a press release from us um, letting you know that they've requested what's called a death warrant, um, which will either be 90 to 100 days out from the execution. And then from 90 to 100 days, that's how long we have until to fight against this. Um, so, yeah, go to our website, sign the petition, share the petition. <laughs> Um, Kevin is a joy. His family is a joy. He's so sweet. And I, I struggle getting, you know, there are days when I get emotional about it and the thought of it, but then there are days when I, all I can do is smile about how wonderful he is. And, and that's one of those days I'm having a better day than most talking about it. I feel like no one would really uh, understand without having listened to this conversation, uh, how much it is, um, how much of your life is spent celebrating life uh, in the face of what this all is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we have to. I think, you know, in a lot of movement spaces, because I do know a lot of organizers doing housing justice or health justice, things of those natures. Right. Um, we can't survive. We can't do this work without celebrating um, 
small victories. And so, you know, when a jury decides on a life sentence, I would agree with life imprisonment, but it doesn't mean that the state gets to kill somebody, which is, it's a huge accomplishment in terms of how we view what's right in our society. And I think that that, you know, sometimes that might be asking people too much, especially when they're in spaces of grief. And I understand, you know, I, again, I, I don't know how I would feel if a family member of mine was murdered, but I would hope that I would at least, you know, sense some sense of, you know, humanity in myself, even through my grief and recognize that I don't want that other person to suffer, um, even though they made a grievous mistake. And so that's what we're dealing with on the day to day (laughs) is really like getting at the humanity of it and what what does real justice look like that was such a dark laugh uh, like i know i just yeah, uh, I, I don't know i guess at some point you just have to lauren thank you so much for your time today uh you're welcome Brock. really appreciate hearing about what you guys are up to and please keep us informed uh, i'm glad that we get to let our listeners know what the face of this looks like and uh why you guys are doing it thank you all right and that has been the Streetwise podcast. Um, today, uh, if you want to come out to Boulevardia, uh, we will be recording our next episode live. It will be me. It will be Nick. The Nick from Nick's Music Corner. And a couple of random people that were assigned to us by the event promoters. And I cannot wait to talk to them about the things that they do that I do not understand. So, like, live and in person, you can watch me not do good at this job, which um, I have read some iTunes comments recently where somebody has let me know that they don't think I do good at this job, and that's fine. Uh, Sir, I invite you to come see me in person, and I will punch you in the nose. No, it's fine. Uh, Criticism is valid. That's wonderful. Anyway, this has been the Streetwise Podcast. Um, I will see you in person, maybe, Uh, but if not... Have a wonderful week. Take care of yourselves, pitch in, and we will make it through. I love that. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.